Amen. Thank you, ladies. Well, good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday. It is a privilege to be together with you uh, this morning. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we're delighted to have you here. Welcome to Roosevelt Community Church. Uh, today, as we celebrate what is, um, uh, interestingly enough, in, in 1992, I came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. That's when I became a Christian. And this happens to be the 1992nd anniversary of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, um, as we give our attention now to the worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the study of Scripture, I invite you to take your Bibles together with me and turn in them uh, to start with to Matthew chapter 7. Now, if you don't have a Bible, then feel free to help yourself to the little black hardback in the pew in front of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible personally, then come see me after the service, because I have a couple of them and I will give away. And if you're not first in line and still want one and I run out, come back next week and I'll be happy to give a MacArthur Study Bible to you then. So uh, we're just delighted to have you with us, and uh, my eternal destiny is based upon, as Albert pointed out, uh, what the Scripture says, and so that's what we want to give our attention to today. It really doesn't matter what I have to say. It doesn't matter what Chuck or Dan or anybody else has to say. All that really matters is what God has to say, and that's what we want to give our attention to today. I've entitled this morning's message, or technically Chuck entitled this morning's message about two months ago uh, in preparation for today's special service, Am I Really a Christian? Now, we deal with topics periodically as we uh, go through the life of the church here on Sundays. We'll address a question and go through a number of scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about that. Normally, we start at the beginning of a book and just work right through it to see what God has to say in context. And today we want to address a subject that I think is um, probably the most relevant subject to address in America today, and that is, am I, really a or, uh, am I really a Christian? A quick search on the internet today will reveal some amazing numbers. As of the end of 2020, there were 7.8 billion people in the world, and 2.4 billion of them identified themselves as Christians. Now, I know what you're saying. This is on the Internet, so it must be true, right? Uh, and these are round number huge stats, so can we really count on them? Well, even if you narrow the scope from those who identify themselves as Christians and just take round general numbers here, as of the end of 2020, which is a little over a year ago, uh, at the end of uh, 2020... There were 7.8 billion people in the world, and roughly a third of them identified themselves as Christians. Now, if you rule out those uh, that are uh, Mormon, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, Catholics, etc., those who teach other than, than what the Scriptures say, those who base their, their faith on additional revelation or traditions uh, or practices, a works-based religion and focus just on those who claim to be evangelical Christians, you're still in excess of 600 million people in the world that claim to be Christians. Now, that sounds like an awful lot of Christians in the world that is run amok. Would you agree with that? What about just in the United States? Well, according to PewResearch.org, which is 
constantly doing statistical analysis and surveys, etc., of churches through the United States, the numbers of professing Christians in the United States are down over the last 10 years. As of December 2021, just a few months ago, Christians make up 63% of the United States population. That is, people who would identify themselves in the United States today as Christians. The current number is 63%. That's just under two out of every three people. It was 75% in 2011. So 10 years ago, it was three out of four people in the United States would have identified themselves as Christians. Today... It's down to nearly, it's nearly all the way down to 6 in 10. So if I just put that into perspective for you, that means that in the United States today, where we have 330 million people, roughly 200 million of them are those who would identify themselves as Christians. What's really amazing to me is over the course of the last 10 years, we have gotten to the place where 3 in 10 people in the United States now are unaffiliated with any religion. Now, I find that fascinating. People, 30%, almost one out of three people in the United States today say they have no religious affiliation. They've given up on Christianity, or at least of what they've been exposed to with regard to Christianity. They've given up on the hope in God, etc. They've bought into evolution. They don't believe that anybody has answers. And frankly, this should not really surprise us because our country's moral standards and agenda are far from a biblical sense of morality. If you look at the state of affairs with regard to the American definition of morality... You'd have to agree that it's very far from what the Bible teaches. Between abortion, immorality, homosexual marriage, free divorce, belief in evolution, the forms of entertainment that are propagated. I can't, I don't think you can, you can look at music today and not see the word explicit on about a third of it. Two-thirds of the people in the United States may claim to be Christians. But here's the question I want to address this morning. Does that make them Christians? You may claim to be a Christian, but does that make you a Christian? I invited you to begin with to turn to Matthew chapter 7 in the Bible. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. And this may be surprising to you, but in Matthew chapter 7, we get to the end of what is probably the most famous sermon of all time. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uh, introducing the kingdom message to the nation of Israel in his day. We come to the end of that sermon in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, he closes off this sermon with these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And here are some of the most frightening words, I think, that are written in the entire Bible. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, referring to the day of judgment, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I find this to be probably the single most frightening statement in the entire Bible. It's Jesus himself addressing those in the day of judgment who think they're Christians, who think they've done great things for God and great things for Christ and name the name of Christ only to find out that when they stand before him in judgment, he says, depart from me. We never had a relationship. You were never really one of my people. Can you imagine anything more terrifying than to get to the day of judgment, believing that you're in good standing before God and that you're a Christian only to have Jesus himself say, you're not one of mine? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, and I apologize, I'm going to hit a number of passages of Scripture today, so if you have trouble keeping up, uh, we do save the message on YouTube so you can uh, go through and slow it down and follow through in the passages with me uh, a second time. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul in verse 5 says to the, the, the uh, people in the church in Corinth, he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? This is Paul writing to people that are going to church. This is Paul writing to people who believe they are Christians. And he is exhorting them, indeed commanding them, to examine themselves to make sure they really are Christians. It's a good thing to check and make sure you're a Christian. Why? Because your eternal destiny is dependent upon it. Self-examination is good, especially self-examination that is aimed at discerning whether or not I really do have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ that facilitates my reconciliation to God and secures for me a place in His eternal kingdom. Self-examination is good. In fact, it's Jesus himself who made it very clear that the one who is going to determine every single person's eternal destiny is he himself. If you want to take your, Bible, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5, I'll show you this. But first, in, in John 14 and verse 6, I'll just quote a passage for you very quickly. In John 14 and verse 6, when Jesus is gathered on a night in which he is betrayed, this is the night before he heads to the cross, he's got his disciples around him, and he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You know what that means? That means Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, faith in him. Now, you, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. You can reject that. But if you reject that, you're rejecting what Jesus himself has said about himself. And if Jesus is telling the truth, then that means the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to escape eternal, the eternal wrath of God that's due for our sins is to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. That's the only way. And in John chapter 5, Starting in verse 24, this is what Jesus says about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
and he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So if you, if you hear the message of Jesus Christ, and you come to him in repentance and faith, you believe in him, you place your faith and trust in him, you live for him, you turn from your sin and dedicate yourself to living for him, you truly become one of his people, then you have passed out of judgment, out of death, into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Because just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And don't marvel at this. Don't be shocked. Don't be blown away by this. Because an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they will come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. And who's the one that's going to judge? Jesus Christ himself. The one who sits on the great white throne that's described in Revelation 20 is none other than the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place. He's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. So he's the one that that in the end is going to determine whether you enter into heaven or not, whether you enter into God's kingdom and you have a place in a new creation, or whether your place eternally is in the lake of fire, suffering the condemnatory wrath that's due for all of us because of our sins. It doesn't matter what we think about our standing before God. It doesn't matter what we say about whether we're Christians or not. What really matters is what He says. In the end, He's the one that's going to make the evaluation. He's the one that's going to determine your eternal destiny, whether you're one of His or not. It doesn't matter if you've done a few things that you think should get you in. It doesn't matter if you've signed a card, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle. It doesn't matter if you've gotten baptized once, twice, three times, sprinkling, immersion. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is whether or not you really are one of his. I remember Chuck telling me about a funeral he went to one time. A funeral, memorial service, whatever. And the guy that stood up said it's really important To make sure you're a Christian because we're all going to die. So how many of you would like to go to heaven? All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. How many of you believe in Jesus Christ and want to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hand. He says, okay, you're all saved. Now tell me something. He may have said that. And those people may have believed that. But does raising your hand, walking an aisle, signing a card, does that really make you a Christian? Ultimately, the one that's going to determine whether you're a Christian or not is who? Jesus Christ. What did we see in Matthew chapter 7 to begin with? He says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. We never had you were never really one of mine. But, 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 but I thought I was. But you weren't. What matters ultimately, as far as your eternal destiny goes, is whether or not you really are a Christian. Would you agree with that? It matters. It eternally matters whether you're truly a Christian or not. So what I'd like to do today is show you right from the scriptures how to determine if you truly are a Christian. I'd like to walk you through a series of passages, and we're going to spend a lot of time in two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and we're just going to walk through them 
And I want to help you to see what the Bible says and mostly what Jesus personally says about whether you're a Christian or not. We're going to start with Matthew 19. So if you take your Bibles, and please do follow me in the Bible. Matthew 19, this is the first of the four Gospels. And I want to help you to see, first of all, that the Bible teaches very clearly that you're not a Christian just because you're a good person. This is number one. You're not a Christian just because you're a good person. In Matthew chapter 19, we have a really good person that comes up to Jesus. And it starts in verse 16. Your Bible may even have a little heading above there called the rich young ruler. That's because this account was so significant. What happened here is so significant that it occurred, that that it's recorded not only in Matthew's gospel, but also in Mark and Luke's. Now, we're just going to look at what Matthew says. But in Mark and Luke, some additional information is told to us about this young man. One is that uh, about this man. One is that he's young. That is, he was about 35 years old. So he's got his whole life in front of him. And and another is that he was a a wealthy ruler. So this is a guy that's about 35 years old. For some of you, that's really old. For most of us, that's really young and promising. And the whole life is in front of you. And he's got a lot of wealth and a lot of property. He's an upstanding, moral young man in his community. And in Matthew 19 and verse 16, he comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, it's Mark and Luke to tell us all that other stuff I told you about this guy. Now we pick up in the text here, and you can see that he walks up to Jesus, and he addresses Jesus as a teacher, so he knows it, recognizes Jesus as a teacher, and somebody who can teach him about God and about how to get eternal life. And he says, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What do I need to do so that I can get eternal life? Because I really would like to go to heaven. And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Why are you coming to me? Are you recognizing me as one who speaks for God or, or what? But I'll tell you this. If you want to know what you need to do to gain eternal life, you know what it is? You need to keep the commandments. You need to be perfectly obedient to God's law. If you want to do it, that's what it's going to take. And then he said to him, well, which ones? (laughs) Which one? I find that fascinating. Well, well, which ones? Can you narrow the scope for me a little bit? Like like the Bible's really big. Can Can you boil it down to a few key ones? So Jesus said, okay. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. That's the easy ones. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal anything. Don't take stuff from other people that isn't yours. Don't bear false witness. Don't ever tell a lie. Honor your father and mother. Well, I'm a basically good kid. And love your neighbor as yourself. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? (laughs) You know what you're still lacking? an awareness of the fact that you don't measure up to that standard. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not going to take time to take you there, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, 
in chapter 5. In, in the beginning, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, whoever fires off a hateful word at somebody, whoever is angry with him in his heart has committed murder already in his heart. See, the standard of God is not just don't take somebody's life, it's don't do harm to them. Don't even have evil thoughts toward them. Don't express a hateful saying toward them. Now, let me ask you a question. If that's really God's standard for murder, how many of us are murderers? You ever fired off a hateful word at somebody? Ever given a disdaining glance to somebody? Ever had bitterness and anger, been angry in your heart at somebody? You know, today on the internet, uh, uh, people talk about being a Karen. Sorry, Karen. Um, <laughs> but people talk, and then if you really want to graduate, you talk about being a Susan, right? These are people that go in and argue, right? And we, and, we, and we laugh about it, make fun about it. You understand when you express hateful speech, that's the same as murder, according to God. And listen, it isn't just that commandment that God's expectations are beyond the, the earthly physical. He says, you have heard that it's been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman with lust for her in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already where? In his heart. See, God's standard. When God evaluates us, he's not evaluating us just on the basis of the externals. He's going to evaluate us on the basis of not just what we do, but what we say and what we think and what we want. Don't steal. Have you ever taken something that isn't yours? Even if you meant to put it back? How about a pen from work? Well, that's really small. The, the commandment is don't take any, is not don't take anything big. The commandment is do not steal. I still remember taking dessert from the refrigerator when I was a kid. I, 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 you understand the, the standard is not able to be measured up to. None of us can measure up to God's standard. I love the last two. Honor your parents and love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. The guy says, I'm doing that. Well, tell me something. How many of us are perfectly and have been perfectly obedient? How many of us are kids or have ever been kids? Most of us. Okay. Everybody but Dan. All right. So for the rest of us, uh, when you were a kid, were you perfectly obedient to your parents? Uh, so you blew it. Oh my, that far back. Yes, that's the point. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we all know it. We all know it. This man thinks that because he is a young man, a moral man, a good man, a, a man that basically follows the commandments of God, that, that that should make him right with God. And when Jesus throws in, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, do you really do you really flawlessly love everybody like you love you? Nobody can measure up to that standard because we truly are sinners. The young man says in verse 20, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. They say, well, does that mean that in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to really be a Christian, I have to sell everything I have? Well, it does for this guy. You want to know why? Because that's what he loved most. How do you know that? Well, look at the next verse. 
When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving because he was one who owned much property. He was a very, very wealthy man, and he wasn't willing to give that up because that was what was really important to him. He wanted eternal life, but not at the cost of his life. He wanted eternal life, but not at the cost of his possessions. He wanted eternal life, but not at the cost of having to admit that he's a sinner just like everybody else. Listen, this is not a moral competition. The more immoral you are, the more eternal wrath you accumulate for yourself. Okay? That's true. So, guys like Hitler that we think of and, and uh, serial killers and stuff like that, are, are they accumulating for themselves more eternal wrath than most of the rest of the people? Sure. Sure. But how, how long is eternal wrath? Forever. So when you're in the lake of fire together with the devil and his angels, if you are suffering this much wrath instead of, I'm not taller, but instead of this much wrath, maybe it's not as bad, but it's still eternal wrath. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's people worse than you. There's people worse than me. There's people worse than both of us put together. But the fact of the matter is we're all worthy of eternal condemnation, all of us. And just being a good person, just being a moral person is not the same as being a Christian. It doesn't get you into heaven. You're not a Christian just because you're a good person. You're also not a Christian just because you're a religious person. If you turn in your Bible a number of pages to the right and go to the Gospel of John, I direct your attention to John chapter 2. Now we're going to hit a lot of scripture here. Because the passage I want to go to is a a fairly well-known passage, but I want to set the context for it by picking up in the middle of John 2. John 2, verse 13. It's the Passover of the Jews. That's the Passover week was just this past week. Friday is the end of the Passover, and that's when Christ was crucified, and this is Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday after the Passover. And Jesus, early in his ministry, goes up to Jerusalem for this Passover celebration. And he found in the temple, so he goes into the temple to worship God, where all the sacrifices are taking place. And he finds there in the temple those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves to be used in the sacrificial system. And the money changers seated at their table. And the money changers are, since it's the temple... They declared that you can't give just any currency. You're going to have to use temple currency. And there's a little slight fee of an exchange rate. So these money changers are set up to make more money out of uh, the whole religious ordeal. So he finds in the temple those who had corrupted the whole sacrificial system by trying to make it into a money-making thing. But that's the priest's. And so Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured uh, out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. This is supposed to be a place of worship, not a money-making institution. And the priesthood had corrupted the whole worship of God. And when he did this, his disciples, now we're referring to the apostles here, Peter, James, John, and the rest, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That the messianic promise of the Old Testament is that the Messiah will be consumed with zeal for God's house. And that's exactly what he did. 
He went in and dealt with all the corruption. Going, this is the high point of the religious system and the Old Testament sacrificial system of worship there in Jesus' day. And the first thing he goes in and he's at the beginning of his ministry is clean house. I read this text, I can still hear the coins tinkling across the stone floor of the uh, temple grounds. I've been to Jerusalem, I've been to those temple grounds, I've walked around on it. It's a huge place. And it's almost like I can just picture it happening there. And the temple guards don't even lift a finger because this is just unheard. Can you imagine somebody going into a bank today and flipping over the cash registers and everything else saying, you guys charge way too much for return fees and da 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 And the guards don't do anything. Well, that's what happens. Jesus goes onto the campus of the temple itself and drives out the, those selling uh, the animals and flips over the... It says he dumps out the coins on the ground. Tinkle, tinkle. Can you hear it? This is wrong and it needs to stop. And the disciples remember, hey, this is what the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to do. Well, the Jews, referring to the religious leaders of the temple there, they say to Jesus, what sign do you do to show as your authority for doing these things? Do a sign that proves you have the authority. Notice they don't even question that he was right or wrong because everybody knows he was right. What sign do you do in order to prove that you have the authority to take this matter into your own hands? And so Jesus answers them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. Notice John tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. And when Jesus died, the third day he what? Rose again. He rose, there's your sign. Now, it's a couple years later, but there's your sign. When, the, uh, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. Signs like what? Like this cleansing of the temple. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. A lot of people were coming forward and going, this must be the Messiah, this is him, I believe in him, I believe in him, I believe in him. And you know what? All the while, Jesus was not entrusting himself to any of them. Why? Because he knew what was really going on in their hearts. Oh, you say you believe in me, but in time it will prove that your commitment to me is superficial. Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men and because he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he himself knew what was in man. He knows your heart, and that hasn't changed. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, so this is a high-ranking muckety-muck in the the religious institution and even in the governing institution because we'll find out later that he is part of the Sanhedrin. This is one of the 70 ruling elders of Israel in that day, and he is the preeminent Bible scholar of the day. He is the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus that night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. That's a pretty good start, wouldn't you agree? This is an Old Testament Bible scholar in Jesus' day that comes to Jesus that very night and says, listen, I've seen what you've done. And that cleansing of the temple, I totally agree with the corruption of the worship system. And you must be from God because nobody could do what you're doing unless God is with him. I'm here to follow you. 
And you'd think that Jesus would say, well, thank you. I'm glad you noticed that. How would you, you know, and you're already the, the preeminent teacher. Why don't you be my chief apostle, right? No. <laughs> Notice Jesus' directness, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you. If you have the King James, verily, verily, I say to you. If you have the Greek, amen, amen, I say to you. This is an absolute certainty. I tell you this unequivocally. Do you know, in, in southern churches, when you preach in a southern church, if you say something that really hits everybody, that everybody really agrees with, what do they say? Amen. amen. And if the pre- preacher doesn't hear enough amens, what does he say? Can I get an amen? And then everybody says, amen. see that? I could preach in the south, couldn't I? <laughs> Listen. Jesus doesn't wait for anybody to add the amen. It's, it's absolutely certain what you said. I, it's absolutely true what you said. Jesus doesn't wait for anybody to add that to the end of what he says because he speaks as God. He puts his amen in the front, and in this case, he puts two of them in the front to make it doubly emphatic. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I don't care how much Bible study you've done. I don't care if you're the preeminent Old Testament scholar of the day. I don't care if you're a hyper-committed religious man seeking to confirm, conform to all of the dietary laws and the sacrificial system and all that stuff. If you don't have a new heart, if God does not make you alive, then you are not one of my people and you don't have a place in my kingdom. Period. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? How how on earth can a guy do that? How can I possibly do that? And then Jesus answered, truly, truly. Notice again, amen, amen, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't let, this shouldn't blow you away. This shouldn't surprise you. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus, you can't do this for yourself. This is an act of God. You need God to save you. You need God to give you a new heart. You need God to give you a new birth. Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be? How can this be? I spent my whole life studying the scriptures. I've spent my whole life trying to be a religious person. And you're telling me I need a new heart? You're telling me I need to be born again? And you're telling me I can't do it? Jesus answered and said to him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? (laughs) You are the preeminent scholar of Scripture of the Old Testament? And you haven't read Jeremiah? You haven't read Deuteronomy? You haven't read your Old Testament and seen this is always what God has said? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you don't accept our testimony. 
If I told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. And then I want you to jump down to verse 16, which is for the sake of time. I just want to go here. This is the verse that Albert made reference to as we opened our service. Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but might have eternal life. Because God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Nicodemus, here's the bottom line. God loves the world, and He so loved the world that He did something about providing for salvation, and that was He sent His Son into the world, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but might have everlasting life. And the son's coming the first time was not to bring judgment. See, the fact of the matter is we all stand judged already. If God does nothing, if God does not send his son into the world, he still has absolute just right and authority to condemn all of us because we've all sinned against him. This is his creation. We are his creatures. He made us in his image. He has every right to expect us to obey him and to worship him and to acknowledge his sovereignty. And he has every right to judge us for every offense that we ever commit against him. You realize when you, when you steal something from somebody else, the one you've ultimate, have you done harm to a fellow bearer of God's image? And by the way, we are all descended from our greatest grandparents, Adam and Eve. So don't let anybody tell you some kind of a lie that your culture or your heritage or your color or your gender or whatever else makes you different from the rest of us. We're all different, yes, but we're all bearers of God's image. We all are descended from that original pair, Adam and Eve. Some of us did not evolve from, from apes and some of us from lizards or fish or birds or whatever. Okay? We're all from Adam and Eve. And I don't care your heritage. I don't care your color. I don't care your gender. We're all bearers of God's image and we're all accountable to him for every thought, every word, and every deed. Every, everything that we have ever done that is offensive to God and everything that we didn't do that we should have done that is offensive to God. You can be as religious of a person as you want to be, but no amount of religion, no number of Hail Marys, no number of Our Fathers, no number of, of good deeds can make up for even one sin, much less all of them. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve every time we offend God is eternal condemnation and eternal wrath. The reason Jesus came was because if he didn't come, God can't forgive us and still be righteous, still be just. Is there any way that it would be right or fair for God to forgive me and not forgive you? Well, I forgive Brian because... He preached for me. I forgive Brian because he did these good deeds for me. I forgive Brian because I like the way he dresses. I, I, I forgive Brian because I like short guys. Right? Does that seem ridiculous? Yes. Nobody likes short guys. No, I'm just kidding. But God does. And it's, and it's not because I fall short of his standard. It's because he and his grace gave me a new heart. I was born again, and I wasn't born again because I earned enough credit to be able to buy it. 
I was born again by a gracious act of God when my eyes were opened to the truth and I came in repentance and faith to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but might have eternal life. God didn't send the son into the world to judge the world. The world stands condemned already. He sent his son into the world to provide the means by which we could be reconciled to God. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he paid for my sins. And when he rose again the third day, that proved that he had actually been truthful in everything that he claimed about himself and that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and that Christ conquered sin, Satan, and death once and for all there at the cross. And he rose again and ascended right back to the right hand of the Father from whence he'd come. The reason that I will not spend eternity in the lake of fire where I absolutely deserve to be is because when Christ died, he paid for all my sins, even the ones I haven't committed yet. My sin debt is stamped paid in full. When God sees me, he goes, well, here's here's all your sins, or here's all your sins. If I was taller, it'd be here, okay? Here's all your sins, but you know what? Paid in full by what Christ did at the cross. See, without Christ and his death paying for your sins, then you will answer for yourself. Being a good person doesn't make you a Christian. Being a religious person doesn't make you a Christian. Frankly, being a Christian person doesn't make you a Christian. Now, that may seem weird, but I want you to follow me here, okay? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to walk right through Matthew's gospel, and we're going to look at what Jesus says. I don't know if we can hit all these passages, but we're going to hit a lot of them. Matthew 7, verse 21. We started here, didn't we? Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In fact, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Wait, there are people who are going to do miracles in the name of Jesus and not get into heaven? You ever heard of Judas? Judas's miracles, just like the rest of the apostles, and denied the Lord and went to his own place. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look then at his description in verses 24 to 27. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, he may be compared to a person who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Well, what's the illustration here? He says, only those who do the will of my Father, only those who really do, come to me in repentance and faith and commit themselves to living for me and being obedient to my commands, being obedient to the Father, actually do dedicate themselves in their lives to being Christians, are the ones who will gain eternal life. Not just those who make a profession. Not just those who, who attach themselves in some superficial way. 
The illustration here is building two houses, one on a rock, one on a sure, stable foundation, the other in sand. If you build a house on sand, let's put, let's put them both. How, how many of you would like a beach house? Me, I don't like the beach, so you can have it. But let's say you, you get a beach house, right? So we put one on a rock and the other one, we just build it on the sand. What happens when the tide comes in? Those of you that chose the house on sand, your house is now on its way to Hawaii. The rest, you got a really nice beachfront property. Okay, that's the picture. Either you found your faith and hope in eternity on the rock of real commitment to Christ and a life that manifests that commitment through obedience. Not that is obedient in order to have eternal life, but that obedience comes from the commitment you made to Christ to really be one of his people. Uh, that's like building your house on a rock. Just saying you're one of his and, and when it's convenient for you or popular or desirous by you to, to do stuff in his name, that's like building your house on the sand. When it really gets put to the test, it's going to come down. It'll be revealed that it's, there's no stable foundation. Well, that's all one passage, Brian. That can't count. All right, well, let's walk through a few, shall we? Matthew chapter 8. We'll look at verse 18. We're just going to walk through these in order. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So there's a lot of people here. There's too many people. Uh, so let's just head to the other side of the sea and keep taking the gospel message out. And a scribe comes to him. A scribe, by the way, is a student of Scripture. Okay? He's not just somebody who writes. He's not a blogger. Okay? This is somebody who spends his time studying the Scriptures and making copies of Scripture, etc., a scribe comes and says to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You would think that Jesus would say, Great, I need a Bible scholar. Come along. Right? No. What does Jesus say? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no other mention of this guy in the Bible. Why? Because Jesus said, If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. We're going to go. You're going to follow me? Then you need to go and leave everything behind. You never hear about this guy again. Why? Because he went home. You get the next guy, another of the disciples. Notice that these are disciples. Another of the disciples said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That seems so harsh, doesn't it? Jesus won't even let the guy go to his dad's funeral. Well, let me just let you in on a little secret. In those days when somebody died... They were in the tomb by evening. If they died at night, they were in the tomb the next night. Okay? You want to know why? Because they didn't have funeral homes. They didn't do embalming. You die in the morning, you're in the grave by evening. You die in the afternoon, there's a hurry to get you in the grave by evening. Remember when Jesus dies on the cross and they take him down and immediately put him in the tomb? And they're going to come back on Resurrection Sunday to, to uh, anoint the body with the oils and all the treated, the for, formal funeral stuff. Listen, if somebody dies, they go in the grave that day. That's, that was the practice. If the guy's dad had already died, he wouldn't be there with Jesus. He would already be. He'd still be at home seeing to the completion of his father's funeral. Do you know what he's asking? Let me first go bury my dad. Meaning, 
Let me go home, work for my dad, and once my dad dies and I get the inheritance, then I'll come follow you. That's why Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Notice it's not the father that's dead. Those people are living for this life. You want to be my follower? You need to forsake everything and follow me. I've got to be sovereign. I've got to be Lord of your life. That's it. That's, listen, that's what it takes to be a Christian, according to Jesus. This isn't me telling you this, is it? Isn't this Jesus' own words? Okay, so that's two. You got any more? I got a bunch, but we'll skip them. We'll jump to Matthew 10. Look at verse 32. When Jesus sends out the disciples the first time two by two, giving them instructions, he closes off this exhortation with these words. Matthew 10, 32, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You, you want to be one of my followers? You've got to be willing to publicly identify yourself with me. Everybody around should know that you are one of mine. Is your Christianity silent? Is it hidden? Look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. That doesn't sound like what you, most people hear about Jesus, does it? Oh, Jesus is the God of love and mercy and grace. And forget you. What does Jesus personally say? Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. But hear me, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross, follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Listen, you want to be my follower? You've got to be my follower even if it costs you every earthly relationship. You know, I know, I have personal experience in losing earthly relationships and identifying with Jesus Christ. I know about that personally. And so do many of you that are part of this church. Standing for Christ, a lot of times, costs you stuff. It costs you promotions. It costs you your job. It costs you relationships. It may even cost you your life. That's what Jesus says. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What happened to everybody that picked up a cross in Jesus' day? They wound up getting crucified. They died on it. What is he saying? Your commitment to me has to be to the extent that you would even be willing to give up your life for me. That's why he says, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You know, salvation is a free gift. It just costs you everything. I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it? You want to be my follower, you've got to be willing to give up everything and follow me. That's what it takes to be a Christian. Yes, Jesus, I want you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. I see myself as a sinner deserving of eternal wrath, and that's it. And I would like to be reconciled to God no matter what. More than anything, you are who I want. I'll give up my sin. I'll give up any relationship that stands in the way of me living for you and standing for you and speaking for you and glorifying you, you are God. And I commit myself to following you all the way through to glory. That's what it takes to be a Christian, according to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, 
we encounter what is called the parable of the soils. This is where Jesus is explaining the nature of uh, the, the, the church ministry to the apostles. We're told in Matthew 13 that Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat because it's the best way to be able to be seen by everybody there. He sits in the boat, goes out from the shore a little bit, and sitting down, the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And so he spoke many things to them in parables. Parable is an interesting term. A lot of people think that a parable is some kind of magical thing. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. In other words, I'm going to use an everyday earthly experience and situation that we could all identify with and understand, but I'm telling it in order to convey a spiritual truth. Well, here's the parable that he tells. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's what Jesus says to the multitudes. Do you track with all that? Uh, it's a guy with a bag of seed, and he goes out and throws seeds, and some of it falls on the really hard ground that's the road, and some of it falls in the shallow ground that's a little rocky, some of it falls in ground with weeds, and some of it falls on good ground, and it's the good ground that produces fruit. I, I don't get it. Well, the disciples, in verse 10, this is referring to Peter, James, John, and the rest, they come to him and said, why are you speaking to the people in parables? He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it's not granted. For to whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will be given in abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they don't see. While hearing, they don't hear, nor do they understand. In their case, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 6. And that's where the quote, the rest of the, the, the next passage is. He says, listen, I've been doing miracles in front of them. I've been teaching them and preaching to them openly and clearly. And they have paid no attention. They have made no commitment. And so you know what? I'm not going to make it easier for them. I'm going to make it harder for them. See, God never caters to unbelief. If you have heard the gospel before and then you hear it again and it just doesn't make as much sense, you want to know why? Because God is not going to cater to your unbelief. If you don't respond to the clear proclamation of the gospel the first time, He's not going to bend over backwards and plead with you. He's going to make it harder and harder and harder. The disciples uh, say, well, why are you speaking to them in parables? He explains it to them, and then he says in verse 18, now this is just with them, he says, hear the parable of the sower, verse 18. You want to know what the meaning is? Here's the meaning. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. You know what? There's going to be a lot of people that hear the message. It has no impact. They don't care. They don't respond to it. And uh, birds are going to come and eat that seed, and it's like they never even heard. I've had numerous conversations with people through the years since I became a Christian about the gospel, and I would say four out of five, maybe nine out of ten people have been just like this. 
of all the people that I've shared the gospel with, at least 80% of them have been just like that. They hear, and it has no lasting impact. They don't care. So it's like they haven't heard. Verse 20, the one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places. This is the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In the parallel account in Luke, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus even threw in the statement, they believe for a while. They actually believe it. They agree with it. They, they consent to it. And they do everything necessary to identify with Jesus to begin with. Yet he has no firm root inside himself uh, because it's only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Some people wonder what happened to their kids when they grow up and they move out of the house and they go to college. They were such good kids. I remember when little Joey, when little Billy, little, little Beth, when little Betty, whoever, when, when they made a profession of faith when they were kids and I was there and it seemed so genuine, seemed so real. They got baptized and they joined the church and, and, they, and they always uh, cleaned their clothes and, and they were basically obedient kids and then they go off to college and then I hear about partying and I hear about this, that, and the other thing and it seems like they just don't care at all about God what happened they had no root no firm root they believed they did but not in a saving way in a mental assent in an agreement with the facts and identified themselves as Christians and when they got out on their own and the parental restrictions are lifted then you live however you want and God becomes less and less important and what is that revealing that you were never truly his to begin with John says it this way, they went out from us because they were not really of us. The next one, I think, is the one for those of you that are part of the ministry here week after week after week after week. And this is the one I want you to think about. The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, or weeds, this is the person who hears the word, and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. There's no mention of them leaving. They're ever present, but never truly fruitful. They're ever with it. There's another parable that Jesus tells that I'm not going to go through this morning in this next passage about wheat and tares. They look like wheat, except at harvest time, there just isn't any fruit. It's all tall. It's all green. It all grows. It's growing in the same soil right next to the good crop. But the fact of the matter is, when harvest time comes, that proves to be a weed. A lot of people identify themselves as Christians. And they commit themselves to a de degree to be behaving like a Christian. And they never really leave, but they never really produce real spiritual fruit. Verse 23, the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the person who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some 100, some 60, some 30-fold. Yeah, some people are more fruitful and glorify God to a greater extent with their life than other people. But the fact of the matter is those who are true disciples, those who truly are Christians, always have evidence of that in their life. They stay true to Christ. They live for Christ. They repent of sin. Now, there's a lot more I could share with you, but just one last passage to take you to, and that's Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, 
If, any man, if anyone wishes to come after me. By the way, notice in verse 24, he says to his disciples, these are people that already identify themselves with him as his disciples. You say, well, it doesn't use the term Christian. That's true. The term Christian doesn't start getting used until the book of Acts, and it was originally used as a derogatory term. Little Christs, you're little Christians, you're little Christs. And it was meant as a slanderous charge. And when Christians heard that, wow, I'm being identified so much with my Lord, I'll take it. In Jesus' day, to be, the, to be his disciple means you're identifying him as your teacher, as your master. And he's speaking to a bunch of people who identify themselves with him as his disciples. And he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To people who already identify themselves as his followers, what does he say is required? You must deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means you say no to who? To you. You are not in charge of your life. You don't decide how you want to live your life. You do not decide your priorities, your morality. You, do, you, you are not in charge. That's where it all starts. Believing in Jesus Christ does not begin with a mental agreement with the facts that Jesus came. As God Most High, the creator uh, and sustainer of everything, becoming flesh in the womb of a virgin, being born, living a sinless life, going all the way to the cross and dying on the cross to pay for our sins, and resurrected the third day, ascending right back to the right hand of the Father from whence he came. Believing those facts by itself does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian in, in keeping with believing those facts is that you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. If anyone wishes to come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny yourself means you say no to you. Take up your cross. Again, what happened to everybody in Jesus' day that took, up their, that took up a cross? They died on it. You say no to you even if it costs you your life and you follow me. What does it mean to follow him? What he says goes. Where he goes, you go. He's your Lord. He's your master. He is soft. That's what it means to be a Christian. All those people that Jesus says, I never knew you to on Judgment Day, those are people that identified themselves with him, but were not truly his. They never made this level of commitment because this is the level of commitment required. Notice he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want this life? You want to live this life for yourself? The way you, want to, you want to watch what you want, want to watch? You want to do what you want to do? You want to be in charge of your own life? You can. You can. Feel free. Just understand, at the end of this life, you're going to answer to him for every sin. That's the decision you're making. But if you give up this life, if you lose this life for his sake, you give him this life, he will give you eternal life and a place in his kingdom and a place in the new creation. Listen, that is the offer of salvation. Notice Jesus' illustration here, verse 26. For what would it profit a person if they gained the whole world and forfeited their soul? Or put another way, what would a person give in exchange for their soul? See, whatever it is that you want to hold on to that's keeping you from coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and really giving your life to him, that sinful relationship, that immoral relationship, the drugs, the alcohol, the job, the prestige, the, the wealth, uh, the earthly relationship, the, whatever it is in this life 
that you want more than you want to be right with God, that's the price tag you're putting on your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. What profit, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeited his soul? I love the way you ask that. What would it benefit you if you actually, what if you had all the wealth of Bill Gates and Donald Trump and I don't know, who else can you throw in there? All the rest of the rich guys and girls in the world, okay? Throw it all there together. Throw all their popularity. You could be Michael Jordan and LeBron James and you could be, I don't know who, okay? Add it all together. And you live a hundred years in perfect health. And then you die. What did it profit you to have all of that when in the end you forfeited your soul and that's forever? That's what Jesus is asking you. Notice verse 27, we'll leave it here. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every person according to their deeds. So at the end of the day, you will answer for every thought, every word, and every deed, both the, the things that you did as well as for the things that you didn't do that you should have done. You're not a Christian just because you're a good person, just because you're a religious person, or just because you're a Christian person. Okay? You're only a Christian if you're a born-again person. Somebody who truly believes in Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Somebody who has been transformed from an independent sinner to a repentant saint. Somebody who has been transformed from an unbelieving skeptic or superficial follower of Jesus to a genuine believer. You are someone who has been transformed from a selfish, self-centered, self-serving person to a loved and loving child of God. You are one who has been transformed from an enemy of God to one who is forgiven and one who therefore forgives. You want to know how you can tell if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian, then you understand that God loves you and demonstrated His love toward you and while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you and paid the penalty for your sins. And out of the overflow of the love that God has shown toward you in Christ, you're going to want to show love to Him in the way you live your life, in the way you treat other people, in the way you point people to Him, and the way you publicly identify with Him as one of His people. As a person who has been forgiven of all of your sins, you will by definition become the kind of a person who is forgiving. Any offense committed against you, you would be willing to forgive it because you have sinned this much and he's forgiven all of it. There's no way anybody could sin against you as bad as you've sinned against God. Of course, I'd forgive everything. And as much as God loves you and is demonstrated in the person work of Jesus Christ, as much as God has forgiven you, as is demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ, and all the hope that God has given to you of the glories of the future with Christ in heaven and in his kingdom. Listen, you want to know if you're a real Christian? If you truly are a Christian, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you committed yourself definitively to being his follower and to living for him no matter what it costs you? Those are the kinds of indicators that demonstrate genuine saving faith. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for all the promises in scripture that indicate to us in advance all the details related to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that proved to us, for example, in Isaiah 53, that this is what you had planned all along. Thank you for the love of Christ 
and the Word of God and for the Holy Spirit who convicts and converts. I pray, Lord, for those of us in this room now who are Christians. I pray that you would encourage us in yourself and move us indeed to dedicate ourselves afresh to living a life that is expressing thanksgiving and gratitude to you for what you've done for us in Christ and demonstrating that gratitude in the way we live our lives. And for those among us who are not Christians or who have been convicted as a result of listening to what you have to say to those who claim to be your followers, may you by your spirit through your word open blind eyes, unstop deafened ears, shatter hard hearts, and grant repentance and faith so that more of those who bear your image might be reconciled to you and know the joys, not only of the hope of salvation and future glory, but the joy of fellowship with God that's available only in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.